Father God, thank you that we can hear your word. Father, thank you that you speak to us. Father, pray that you would not leave us unchanged this morning, but help us to understand and love you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before us this morning, we have a, a battle passage in the Bible. Um, battle passages in the Bible, in some ways they can feel the most distant passages that we read, and in some ways they can feel the most personal ones that we read. With all the violence and bloodshed and, and all that sort of stuff going on, it can feel so alien to our experience, can't it? As Christians, we're called to lay down our lives, not take the lives of others. We're called to love our enemies, not kill them. But Old Testament passages where the people of God were a physical nation with physical enemies, it can feel strange and alien to us. And yet, on the other hand, it can feel so personal, can't it? We so often can feel embattled. We feel that we're in a struggle. The Christian life feels like a battle so often, doesn't it? Attacks from outside, but also attacks from within ourselves, and of course friendly fire from other believers. When we read of warfare, it can really resonate, resonate, resonate. It can feel like our own experience and teach us things about ourselves and our own experience. In the passage that we've got this morning, it's Israel's first ever battle. Battle from the outside, anyway. Over the last few weeks, we've seen them trying to do themselves in, haven't we? Trying to uh, moan about things and complain and inviting God's anger upon them. But God has been gracious to them and rescued them. Now, many more battles will follow on through Exodus, through Numbers, through Joshua, through Judges, and so on. But here is where it all starts. This is the first one, the first military battle that they face. But as we go through, let's also think about our own battles. Let's also think about how this affects us in our struggles. So our first point this morning, an attack from outside. Let me read to you verses 8 to 10 again. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up on top of the hill. This incident is a threat to the life of Israel. It's like the attacks of the last few weeks, but it's from outside rather than from within. There are problems that are having to be faced, but they're coming from outside. The Amalekites attacked them. Now the Amalekites, they were not Canaanites. Okay, that's important to understand. They were actually descendants of Abraham, like the Israelites were. They were descendants of Abraham through Esau, Jacob's brother. But here, they're acting like Canaanites. They're attacking the Israelites and seemingly trying to stop them from taking the promised land. Deuteronomy tells us a bit more about how they went about it. In Deuteronomy 25, it says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Not only is Amalek attacking them, but Amalek is picking off the weak ones, the weary ones, the less able ones of the group. They were attacking those who couldn't keep up pace with the main group as it moved from place to place. It would have been the elderly, it would have been the infirm, the weak. 
So it's a particularly nasty strategy that they pursue as they go after them, preying on the weak. They were mostly nomadic as a people, so it's likely they were sort of going behind them and taking them off in parties, sort of diving in and then coming out. But now here in chapter 18, it comes to a head, and there's an actual battle between the two of them. No doubt the raids on the way to Rephidim had warned them that this was coming. They knew there was a big group of them there. And Amalek marshals its forces to take on Israel. And Joshua here is given the task of finding men to fight against them. Now this, again, you probably it's one of the things you sort of skip over, but this is the first mention of Joshua in the Bible as well. But this chapter, in many ways, foreshadows what will take place in the life of the Israelites to come. Joshua here is sort of second in command. He's the commander of the army. Except remember that there is no army. These guys have come out of Israel, they've left, sorry, come out of Egypt without a sword being raised. They've never fought before. If they had swords, it was probably only what they'd been able to plunder from the Egyptians. And why would they have given them swords as they ran away? This generation was completely unprepared for war. They'd never fought anybody. So Joshua's task would probably have been quite hard. You know, choose some men to fight. But these men had never fought before. And yet, God uses them. And he uses Joshua to do it. But even the fact here that he's called Joshua should give us hope. We find out later on that actually, his name wasn't Joshua at this point, it was Hoshea. He was only renamed Joshua in Numbers 13 when he becomes one of the spies who goes and spies out the land. Instead, he's given the name Joshua here, which is his name in the future. And his name means the Lord saves. Joshua in Hebrew, Jesus in Greek, the Lord saves. That's the guy who's leading their army. Now I don't think we should make too much of it at this point, but it's a clue, given his name uh, later on, as to what's going on. This is the Lord saving them. This is not Joshua saving them, God is the one that is rescuing them. How? Well Moses has a plan. He tells Joshua to gather the fighting men for tomorrow. Tomorrow in Exodus is the day when God judges his enemies. It happens a few times during the plague. Tomorrow this plague will come. He, meanwhile, will stand on top of a hill with the staff that he has used throughout Exodus. He calls it here the staff of God. He also takes Aaron and Hur. Aaron is his brother, future high priest. And Hur, according to tradition, is Moses' brother-in-law. But all we know about him from the Bible is that he's one of the elders of Israel. But tantalisingly, we're not told what for. Why is he taking these people with him? Why is he going up on the hill? We find out in the next bit. Hope, uh, help from on high. Doing really well with words this morning. Help from on high. I shouldn't alliterate so much, should I? Um, right, let's have a look at verse 11 uh, to 13. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. This part of the passage is certainly the hardest part of this section of Exodus, 
And to be honest with you, I flip-flopped on it all the way through the week. Uh, it took me quite a while to sort of decide eventually what is going on here. Because I don't know about you, but whenever I've heard this passage preached, I've heard it always described as prayer, as what is going on. And indeed, most commentators and famous Christians over the past 500 years have taken it that way. They say that what is happening is that Moses goes on the hill to pray. And for this, they say, well, in the Old Testament especially, and in the New Testament too, the posture for prayer was not sort of bow your heads and, you know, like we do, but was to put your hands in the air like that uh, and pray that way. That was the normal way to pray in the Old Testament. But there are these three big problems with this view. One, it doesn't actually say that he prayed. We've seen Moses cry out to the Lord. We've seen people call on the name of the Lord in Exodus. We've heard Moses say things to God that have been recorded. But here, we're not told anything. That sort of language isn't used. And no words are recorded for what he said. And we know, don't we, that prayer requires words, even if they're just in our head. The Bible knows nothing of the sort of modern trend of sitting in silence and treating that as prayer. So it doesn't actually say that he prayed. Secondly, though, as well, it doesn't explain the presence of the staff or his position on the hill. Moses declared intention the day before is to take the staff of God and go on the hill. He doesn't need the staff to pray. He doesn't need to have it in his hands to talk to God. And he doesn't need to be on a hill to speak to the Lord. If anything, the presence of the staff makes this more like the plague incidents that we've had earlier in Exodus, or the striking of the rock that we saw last week. Though there, even the plagues were mentioned as as linked with the staff. Holding up the staff makes it sound more like the Red Sea incident, where God told Moses to lift up his staff, to divide the sea, to stretch out his hand, it says, to uh, presumably with the staff in it, to bring it back down on the Egyptian army. So it sounds more like those kind of incidents rather than a prayer thing. The hill makes him visible to the army, presumably, but why should that matter? If it does that they had to see him pray, then this would make it more about the power of morale than about the power of prayer. And then thirdly, the people fight, not pray. You see, in these passages, we're quick to read ourselves into the role of Moses. But the people of God themselves here are, are, are either fighting or being fought for. That's what the actual people are doing, isn't it? If it was a lesson about prayer, wouldn't the people be told to pray? Wouldn't he be sort of splitting them in half? You know, you half go fight, you half go pray. But the focus, though, is on fighting for the people and then whatever Moses is doing on the hill. And then fourthly, prayer doesn't work like this, does it? Prayer doesn't only work while you're actually praying. You know, what time it is, is not the key factor in prayer. You can pray for somebody years before that prayer is answered, can't you? That's often the way. It's not more powerful if you pray for something while it's happening. And it doesn't stop being answered the moment that you stop praying, which is what seems to happen here. And with that, prayer does not depend, sorry, winning the battle does not depend on our prayers, on our prayers. It depends on God. Now I'm being very careful as I'm saying, or I'm trying to be very careful as I'm saying this, but what I mean is that there's a school of thought sometimes that God cannot act without our prayers. As though he's limited by what we pray for. And this sort of passage is used in defence of that. But God is not limited by the prayers of his people. 
Indeed, he ordains the prayers of his people. So prayer is incredibly important, and it really does change things. But it's not as though if we pray, God will act, and if we don't pray, he won't. If we make God dependent on our prayers to act, then we make him an idol. Powerless without our direction, helpless without our action. His plans are frustrated by our prayerlessness. But that's not the God of the Bible. If God wants to win a battle, he will do it, whether his people pray for it or not. That said, his norm is that he gets his people to pray for it. And in that way, his prayers, uh, plans are fulfilled and his people's prayers are answered as well. So prayer really is important. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think this is principally about prayer. But if it's not about prayer, what is it about? Well, it fits with what we've been seeing through the last few passages, if you've been here the last few weeks. Moses here is acting as a mediator, a go-between. He represents God to the people, and the people to God. Here the emphasis seems to be more on God to the people, though, rather than the people to God. After all, it's the staff of God that he holds aloft in his hands over the people. And standing there, he symbolises the presence of God over the battle. No presence of God, no victory. That's what it's saying. That makes a bit more sense, doesn't it? The Lord here as well is described as their banner in verse 16. Now when we hear banner, as Doug was alluding to earlier in prayer, we often think to think about big, giant fabric. That's fab- Fabric? Fabric flags. There we go. You sort of think of those sort of big things that you have out, outside of buildings, you know, those sort of things you stick on a wall. You know, a banner that flies across this land. But the word that's used here is just a word that's used for a pole or a staff that's used to signal. It may have a flag attached to it, but not always. The staff would seem to be what's in mind here. So, for example, the serpent on the pole incident in Numbers 21, the word for pole there is the same word as the word for banner here. Moses is symbolising the presence of God with his people by holding up this banner, by holding up this staff. Is the Lord among us or not? The last punished passage. passage. Is the Lord among us or not? The last passage finished with. Well, here is their answer. An emphatic yes. God is with us. And if he wasn't, they would stand no chance of winning the battle. Moses and his staff symbolise the presence of God with them. Like the Ark of the Covenant would do a generation later. In battle, the Ark would go before them into battle. Here, Moses and his staff sort of stand in for the Ark known as the throne of God in the Bible, which is probably what verse 16 is in some way alluding to. Moses provides a link between the heavenly and the earthly. He stands as a mediator between God and man. And as such, he's a picture of Christ in this. The church fathers saw this more clearly than we've done in more recent times. That was their understanding of what was going on. They saw in Moses a picture of Christ. Even a picture of the cross on a hill with his arms outstretched. Justin Martyr, who we looked at uh, a few weeks ago on a Sunday evening, he wrote this. In truth, it was not because Moses prayed that his people were victorious, but because while the name of Jesus, i.e. Joshua, 
was at the front of the battle, Moses formed the sign of the cross on the hill. Now I don't think the shape is the really important part, but the role that he was playing. I think uh, it's not too far-fetched to say that we see a picture of Jesus here, having seen him in the tree that makes the bitter water sweet, as we've seen him in the bread from heaven in the passage after that, as we've seen him as the rock that was struck. But we now see him in the person of Moses on the hill, his staff held aloft, ensuring that the battle is won. But Moses, turns out, is not up to it. While the Lord held his hands outstretched till evening on the cross, Moses knows that he can't hold up his arms for long. Presumably that's why he brings Aaron and her. Moses was an old man by this point, he was over 80. And he's aware that keeping his arms up all day is going to be a big task. He's aware of the frailty of his flesh. And he's not too proud to bring help. This interestingly anticipates next week when Moses will get help leading the people after some advice from his father-in-law. But for now, Aaron and her stand there and assist Moses to keep his hands up. They help him to do what he has to do for the people in the battle. And meanwhile, the people fight and win. There's victory over the Amalekites. But it's not the end of the story. It's our last point. The ongoing battle. Let me read to you verses 14 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God gives Moses instructions to write down that the memory of the Amalekites is to be blotted out. This is the first reference to Moses writing something, though of course he'll go on to write the first five books of the Bible. He's also got to recite it in the ears of Joshua. Now we don't know it yet at this point, but of course Joshua will go on to be his successor. He will be the one that takes them into the promised land and take out God's enemies there. But why the big deal about the Amalekites? Why is it so important that he writes it down, that it gets passed on to the next generation? Well, partly it's to do with the fact that they're not Canaanites. Remember we said at the beginning, these guys were descendants of Esau, biological descendants of Abraham. They weren't included in the people that they were to take out. But they've set themselves up against God. They've sided with the enemy against God and his people. And whilst biologically they're closely related, theologically they're worlds apart. So now the destruction of the Canaanites has expanded to the destruction of the Amalekites. And this people will be a thorn in the side of the Israelites until they're utterly wiped out. They will attack the Israelites when they seek to enter the Promised Land. They will oppress the Israelites during the period of the Judges. They'll eventually be decimated during the reigns of Saul and David. But even the last remaining one that we hear of will seek to wipe out the whole nation in one fell swoop. I'm talking about Haman the Agagite, who is a descendant of the Amalekite king, Agag. He's the guy who attempts to wipe out all the Jews everywhere during the time of Queen Esther. He's an Amalekite. That's them, sworn enemies of God's people. It's a bit weird though, isn't it, that he says that they'll be wiped out from memory... And yet he asks it to be written down. Do you ever wonder that? 
Surely that ensures that they will be remembered. Actually, sure, the best thing would just be to wipe them out and not write anything. And actually, it says that this war will continue from generation to generation. It seems to be an ongoing thing. But they're wiped out now. So what's going on? How can he say that? Well, in the context of books and Exodus, being blotted out is significant. That's what that word means. If you're not sure about ink, we didn't have sort of ink pen, well, we have biros, but you know, blotting out is actually getting rid of something in a book. In just a few chapters, Moses will say to God in Exodus 32, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, uh, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So it seems there, even in the book of Exodus, there's this book that's referred to, that God blots people out of. It's not referring to the Bible, but to another book. We finally get the full picture in Revelation 3 verse 5. It says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. Ultimately, that's the blotting out that it's talking about. That's where their name will no longer be written or remembered. And all those whose names are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life will be thrown into the lake of fire, it says in Revelation 20. That is the end for Amalek, and it won't be a good one. But how then does this war go on from generation to generation before the end? Well, there's always an Amalek, isn't there? The attitude of Amalek continues. Their opposition to God's purposes, the way that they fight against God's plans, be it Amalek, Egypt, Assyria, or Babylon. Babylon is the Bible's favourite picture for this, picked up all the way to the end in the book of Revelation. But really, Amalek is the same picture. The only nuance, perhaps, is that you'd expect Amalek to be on their side, being related and all. And their opposition, therefore, hurts doubly in that sense. But they still oppose. Their opposition is no different. All that share that Amalek attitude opposition to God and his plans are involved in this. And we still face that today, don't we? Opposition to God's plans for the world. Opposition to Christ's kingdom. And sometimes we see it from surprising quarters. Organisations and people we'd expect to be sympathetic to the claims of Christ, but who in practice oppose them. But we don't wage war against people. But we do wage war against that Amalek attitude. We don't wage war against flesh and blood, but the forces behind it. And perhaps the most surprising opposition in those areas comes from our own hearts. We have an inner Amalek that we must wage war against. We have that Amalek attitude still inside us. The more normal name for it is indwelling sin, the world inside us. How do we win that battle? Because all of us face that, whatever situation we're in. Well, prayer is important. I don't want to downplay that. We pray for ourselves. We pray for each other. But our passage points us to a bigger truth. Our victory depends on the presence of God. No presence of God, no victory. The battle is literally hopeless if we have not God. God is present with us by his Holy Spirit. That's why it says in the New Testament in Romans, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit 
you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's by God's presence that we are able to drive out sin. So firstly, if you're trying to fight sin without God, without his spirit, I want to tell you this morning that you cannot win. Some people are attracted to church as a sort of self-improvement thing, you know, it makes you feel better. They've got things in their lives they'd like to get rid of, sins, addictions, bad habits. But there's no overcoming sin without the presence of God, without his spirit. We receive his spirit when we trust in Christ. So if you're trying to fight sin and you've never put your trust in Jesus and his death on the cross, then you're fighting a losing battle. Moses' hands are down, the presence of God is not there and you will not win. But viewing that in the positive, if you have put your trust in Christ this morning, if you're a believer, you are able to defeat sin in your life. Some sin in your life. You still have to fight like Joshua did, but the battle is winnable over individual sins. And the final victory when Jesus returns is assured. Moses' hands are up. Your mediator, Christ, ever lives to stand before the Father. His hands never come down. You see, Moses came and went, didn't he? He even needed help to hold his arms up. But Christ, Christ always has his arms outstretched. He ever stands before his Father in his role as mediator. He ever lives in us by his Spirit, helping us overcome sin. And it's to him we look in temptation's hour, when we're facing the battle, when we're feeling it hard. Hebrews 4 says this, Since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who with every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It's through him that we have the hand on the throne. It's through his victory that we can win the fight. So yes, we must still fight. There is sin still in us. But there's no sin that's not overcomable with Christ. We have hope because Christ is there with us in our own personal battles. So this week, this month, let's look to him when we feel that we're struggling, when we feel embattled. Let's remember his defeat of sin on the cross and count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And in the end, by God's grace, we'll win the battle. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that his hands are ever outstretched. Father, that he is ever before you. Father, thank you that we have his presence with you standing for us and his presence in us helping us to fight sin. Father, help us this week to overcome sin in our life. Help us this week, whatever struggles we face, to keep looking to him and keep trusting in him in the battle. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.